welcome back to the road to d1 everybody it's episode 22 and we've got some pretty big news on this episode yeah absolutely so we're on episode 22 right now and you know we've been doing these little blocks of six episodes so the end of this block episode 24 is actually going to be the season one finale yeah you know nothing super big coming out of the season one finale besides you know we'll be taking a month off making everything revamped and make it all look good again on the Instagram and, you know, changing a few things up just to make the podcast better than it already is. And then we'll be back with season two and episode one. Yeah, we're super excited to come back already, even though we're not even gone yet. But make sure you're still following along on Instagram so you can see all of our updates, anything that's going on with the podcast. And, you know, you can go back and listen to some episodes you might have missed to fill the void of me and Josh. Yeah, because, you know, we're always there whenever you need us. But before we get to all that, I think we need, a, we need to focus on this week first. Oh, for sure. Um, so let's jump into the question for this week, Josh. Yeah, I mean, the question for this week, you know, it's one we, we ask almost all of our guests, you know, unless it's obvious. So Lucy, do you Google yourself? Uh, didn't want to talk about this one, but okay. So I definitely have, um, for sure. I mean, who hasn't? Not like I'm a famous athlete or anything. Um, however, when you Google me, it is quite the moment. Um, if you knew me back in eighth grade, we've talked about my love of the Capitals on the show quite a few times. So back in eighth grade, 2018, it was the year the Capitals won the Stanley Cup. So the day afterwards, our student resource officer at my school said, we're going to do cop car karaoke. This was kind of like, you know, classic thing he did. It's like carpool karaoke, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, so we sang, we are the champions, obviously, obviously, because we were the champions. And like that day at school, everybody's like walking around congratulating me for winning the Stanley Cup. Was I on the team? No. Um, but yeah, that's but just every, like, oh, everybody yeah. knew though. Everybody knew it didn't matter that you weren't on the team. Like you, you were though. I was, I was, I part a part of it. Our first guest ever, Aiden Gobire, I actually made a bet with him and he had to wear a Capitals jersey that whole day, even though he's a New York fan. It was, it was great. great. It was great. It was a great day. Anyway, so we do the cop car karaoke. Later that night, I get an email from our principal saying the news wants to come like do a little segment on it because it was wholesome moments, you know, wholesome moments. Anyway, now when you Google my name, it's just all, it's that video. I cannot sing to save my life. It's embarrassing. All the pictures of me when you Google me are like pictures of me when I was little at Caps games, just completely. There's a picture of me completely painted red. I look like the devil. Um, but yeah, that's what happens when you Google me. Yeah. Um, so in other words, she's telling you not to Google her. But listen to me and Google her. You'll, you'll get a good kick out of it. It's, it's a time. Josh, have you Googled yourself? I mean, like everybody's done the one-off, but like there's nothing regular. I'm I'm boring. I got nothing. There's no there's no articles. There's no nothing about me. So like Lucy's the famous one here. Yeah, sorry guys, not to flex on Josh. His name is also Josh Thomas, to be fair. I can imagine there's quite a few other. Yeah, it's it's a little generic in the end. A little a little bit. Anyway, in conclusion, let's not Google Lucy, but what we should do is go Google our next guest. Yeah, our, our guest this week is quite the trailblazer. I mean, she was a part of the founding movement of professional women's basketball in the United States. Yeah, absolutely. And she'll be able to tell you all about that. Um, I don't want to keep you any longer. So let's jump right into our episode with Miss Val Whiting. Alrighty, everybody, please welcome to the show, Miss Val Whiting. How are you doing today? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, so you have definitely had quite the accomplished career. 
but could you kind of tell us just a little bit about where it started, like why you started pl playing basketball? Um, I, I started playing basketball by accident. I wasn't really into sports at all. Um, I was pretty much into recess and playing outside. And in seventh grade, I was getting bullied a lot. And I thought if I went out for cheerleading, the bullies would leave me alone. They would forget and I'd be cool. Um, I remember going out for cheerleading, practicing hours for a couple of weeks, all the cheers, and then still not making a team. And later that week, my math teacher said, hey, um, would you be interested in trying basketball? And that's how I got started. It wasn't, I wasn't looking to play. And both, my play, both of my parents actually did play basketball, but they didn't really force the sport on me. Honestly, I think it's because I was a girl. I, don't, I think my parents were sexist. Because if I were a boy, they'd be all over me playing basketball. So um, obviously you started in seventh grade, but when did it truly become like a passion of yours and something that you wanted to do every day? Um, probably the, the summer between my ninth and 10th grade years when I got my first college letter, I went to a summer camp and then you can go to camps and college coaches would come watch you like exposure camps. So AAU wasn't as big as it was now. And I got my first letter from Princeton University saying that they were interested in me coming to their school. And I didn't know that you could play college basketball. So um, that, that inspired me because first I can play this in college. And secondly, someone actually thinks I'm good. And I started believing in myself as a result. That's a crazy story. Honestly, you don't really hear about people like accidentally stumbling upon becoming like a collegiate athlete. That's incredible how <laughs> gifted you must have been. Um, so how did that kind of change your mentality around the game and kind of like your perspective on like school and life as a whole when you started receiving this attention from colleges regarding basketball? Um, well, first, I want to let you know I was not um, gifted. When I first started playing, I used to shoot over the backboard. I used to shoot in the wrong basket. I was really bad. I mean, really bad. Um, I, my dad took wake me up on Saturday mornings and at 6 a.m. we'd go out and work on our game. He'd have me playing with grown men. That may be tougher. Um, but the mentality for, um, it didn't change my mentality because I was always a, a strong student and competitive academically. Um, it just made me work harder for, with basketball wise because I, I had a goal and I, I knew that I wanted to play in college. Um, you said, obviously, you started off with very humble beginnings in the sport. So um, if, if thinking back about how long did it take you to really Start, finally start getting in the groove and when those Saturdays didn't become as long in the mornings I would say not until like that the summer between my ninth and tenth grade year when I started um like being more motivated intrinsically and not have, needing my father to, to tell me to get up and take shots or get up and um, jump rope or anything like that so it, it took a it took a while and to be honest most kids would have probably quit if they had that experience in seventh grade. And I'm, I'm glad I didn't. I don't even remember even having that conversation or having those thoughts. Um, I have really good parents. Clearly. And I'm sure Stanford is also very glad that you did not give up on your goals that early as well. Um, <laughs> so you did end up choosing to go there. What made that really stand out? And when did you start specifically speaking to Stanford and not just like colleges in general? So when I was um, in eighth grade, I think either eighth or ninth grade, I went out to a USA basketball tryout 
And back then you can go to USA basketball um, national team trials and not be invited. And so my dad, I mean, I wasn't good enough to be there, but my dad put me out there so I can get my butt kicked, see what there was, um, see what could be of me one day and see other women my, my height and that looked like me because I wasn't around people that looked like me in my height. I was always just the tallest person. And what happened was I ended up getting cut and I, I mean, I should have been cut, but for some reason I was crying and the Stanford coach saw that and that put me on her radar. Like my reaction, me being so competitive. And she also noticed how well I backpedaled. And I always tell this story because kids think coaches are going to games just looking at stat sheet. They're looking at a lot of other things besides, you know, the points and the rebounds and assists. Looking at how you react to mistakes, what kind of teammate you are, you know, how do you get up and down the court? So um, that's that's when she saw me. And the school I went to in Delaware was really small. It's an all girls Catholic school. Only 52 girls in my class. There's no way she would have found me otherwise. So um, that's, you, you mentioned there that you grew up in Delaware and played for a very small team. And then you ended up going out all the way to the West Coast. Um, was that a hard decision to really make to, to go all the way from the East to the West and from like your small uh, 52 person school all the way to a big school like Stanford at the time? Um, no, because I always, I had a fascination with California. Um, always wanted to go to college there after I won, after I figured I want to go to college and play basketball, then I became interested in schools in California. I didn't even know, I had not even heard of Stanford before. I've only heard of the Ivy Leagues pretty much because I was, you know, Penn was close and I went to Cornell and Yale and Dartmouth. So I was thinking about those schools, not Stanford. And then when I got my first letter and, and um, they were like, oh, what are schools in California? And it's a great school. That's when I became really interested. I wasn't particularly having more conversations with Stanford or anybody else because every school in the country was recruiting me. And back then, um, except for one school, I mean, every top basketball school. And back then they could call you anytime you want. They, they could call you five times a week if they wanted to. And I was having conversations with coaches uh, every night and getting letters in the mail. And there was no texting, there was no email then or Twitter. Did that ever feel like overwhelming for you at such a young age? And kind of how did your parents respond to all this attention you were getting as well? It was overwhelming because I don't do a good job of saying no. I had so many people coming to my house for home visits and I had no interest in going to their school, but I, I didn't want to let them down and or they, they, I didn't want them to be mad at me. So I, I said, okay, sure, come, come to my house. Let's sit down and talk. I really had a final three schools and it was Stanford University, Iowa, where Vivian Stringer was at the time. And then University of Virginia where Dawn Staley was as a point guard. I'd played with her in AAU and I had a great experience and I would not I would have loved to play with her again. So I don't really remember being too overwhelmed, um, but I just do remember, because I thought it was the norm, having people calling you that was normal. People calling your house and wanting to come to your school. That's the only experience I ever had. Um, <clears throat> sorry. Um, what besides obviously wanting and just having that fascination with California, was there anything that put it ahead of your other top three schools or anything that really pushed you besides that? Like just knowing that it was a good school and knowing that you had always wanted to go out and explore the West Coast? 
Um, well, I took an unofficial visit there. My mother had a business trip and we all went um, as a family out to California and I visited the campus and got to see the sites around it, like um, San Francisco and Monterey. And it was just Santa Cruz, it was beautiful. And that, that pretty much sold me. And also I wanted to be a doctor and I knew they had a great, um, not, not only a great med school, but also a great pre-med program. So going from such a small all-girls Catholic high school to a huge university like Stanford, was that a hard transition for you, not only playing basketball, but also just like lifestyle-wise? Um, no, it wasn't a hard transition because I, I really just went from one team to the other team, to my new team of 12, 12 girls. It didn't, it just felt awesome to be out and be free and go to bed when I want to, eat what I want to. I can have Captain Crunch if I want to. My parents never bought like those kind of cereals. So when I saw that in, in the dorm, in the cafeteria, I was like, yo, Captain Crunch. So it wasn't really a big adjustment because I was playing a sport. I think maybe if I weren't playing a sport and I didn't have someone to be with me as a family, it'd be harder. But I, I had um, already 12 sisters built in. Um, you mentioned that you had initially wanted to become a doctor and were actually on the pre-med track at Stanford. So was that a hard balance to have both managing something as big as pre-med and then as well as playing collegiate basketball? Yeah, see, I got this question yesterday. Um, I never really had time to think about it. It just seemed normal. Um, and everybody else on my team was doing it too. And nobody was complaining about it. And people, and if you needed help, you can get the help you needed. So I never thought about the, the time crunch. And I mean, I'll be straight up, I didn't have a social life. It was rare that I went out. It was rare that I went to parties. Um, we were taking tests and exams on the road. Um, during the final four, um, the final four week, it's always finals week at, at Stanford. So I took my finals at the final four, you know? So it was crazy. Or I remember one year we had just um, got our third birth to the final four, like we won. And then I had to study at a final the next day. So it was, it was, the hardest part was like getting yourself centered back to schoolwork after you just, you know, had the game of your life. That's all you can think about. But then you got to get ready to study because you have a, a biology exam the next day. That really shows incredible determination by both you and your teammates that you guys were able to have such success on the court. I mean, I saw that you won two national championships during your time at Stanford. Well, you're also studying to become a doctor, which at Stanford, which on its own is an incredible feat. So playing off a little bit about how you did win those two championships, can you describe the feeling of, you know, having that, like you won the biggest prize you could win at that point? Uh, so the first championship I was a part of my freshman year, and I thought that was normal. So it wasn't like, you know, I was just like, oh, this is what oh, people do this every year. So that's, that's, as a freshman, I thought that I was just along for the ride. I mean, I was coming off the bench and I was leading into my rebounding and stuff, but it just seemed like that's the norm to, you know, win every game. And, and we only lost one game that year and then win the NCAA championship. My junior year, it was cool because I was, I was in a leadership role and I was the go-to player on a team and I had the carry team. And um, so that made it really sweet, especially since that summer before I spent um, at Stanford, catching up and taking some more classes, but also um, 
getting stronger and working on my fitness. So what was that? Um, obviously, you said your freshman year, you guys won in that. And then your junior year, you guys won. What was that sophomore year like in between? Was it kind of like a little bit of a hangover year or was did did everything kind of just um, was everything kind of just harder that year? Um, I think it's, for some reason it was harder. Well, for me, I was having issues off the court. Like my my um, my college roommate was getting stalked, and so um, it, stuff would be like inside the room. That the person that was stalking her was found her, and and the police were involved. And my parents had to come out and move me from her room somewhere else to be safe. And then when it was all over, we found out she was really stalking herself. <laughs> So, but I was going through that and not knowing she was talking herself after court. And then, and then also I was having some homesickness. I didn't have homesickness my first year, but the second year I had some homesickness and I wasn't as happy as I was. And I was playing inconsistent. Um, and, it, and we all started playing well at the same, at the right time, we ended up going to the final four that year, but um, we ended up losing to Tennessee in the semifinals. Yeah, I'm a little bit shook by that story about your roommate stalking herself right now, but yeah. that's yeah. not something you hear every day. You definitely hear some crazy roommate stories, but that's got to be up there. Yeah, it was like there was an actual detective on the case and everything. Oh, wow. All was, right. Like, yeah, I was out of the room by the time all that came out, but my parents were like, get her out of there. Fair enough. That's a good call on their part. Um, so that's crazy, but we'll move on a little bit. So I, you also won all American titles, I believe. Did you win two or was it more of those? Um, two. Two of those. So how does that kind of compare to the team championship? Does it mean more or less to you, would you say? Uh, all American, everybody wants a, a national championship. So for example, my senior year, I was all American, but we didn't make it to the final four or make, win a championship. And I, I I would have traded that for a championship in a heartbeat. So, um, and I, I, I have a feeling that other players that were all Americans and didn't win a championship would feel the same way as well. Do you, obviously like the championship is the pinnacle of it all, but do you feel that um, all American isn't as recognized then as winning the championship? Um, I think so. Yeah, because March Madness is all about the team and uh, you know the Cinderella stories. But I never really thought of thought about it. I, one thing I always wished I would have gotten though was um, Player of the Year. I never made. I was always a finalist, but I never got a Player of the Player of the Year award. But still, winning Player of the Year and, and not winning a national championship, I, I I'd be upset as well. Understandably. Um, so obviously coming out of college, finishing your senior year and all American, you're one of the top female basketball players out there. Um, however, there was no WNBA at this point. Um, so did you ever consider like that pro basketball could become an option for women or were you kind of just like that was out of your mind and you were like, okay, I'm going to move on to a different career now. So I got into, I was pre-med. So I got into medical schools, um, my senior year, but I deferred admissions, and I said, hey, give me two years and go play professional basketball, which is overseas, because that's where women's basketball was at that time, it was overseas. And then I'll come back and start medical school. And so I went to play in Italy, Israel, and in Brazil. And then that was 1996. When I came back in 96, the American Basketball League decided to start. 
and they decided to start in 96 because in 1996, there was the Olympic games in Atlanta and um, the women's national team just balled out and, and it was so popular, set records in terms of attendance and the American Basketball League and their investors thought it was time. And so I played, um, they put the top players on each, like different teams, they signed them with two different, two players on each team. I was on San Jose with um, Jennifer AZ and I played for, I played there and made, was an all-star my first year and then um, got traded to Seattle Reign, played there for two seasons, but halfway through the second season, the league folded and then we all went, well, not all of us, some of us went to the WNBA. So the WNBA and the ABL were happening at the same time. The, the WNBA started in 97, the ABL started in 1996. Um, they were actually courting some of the ABL players as well, even though the ABL paid more. So ABL, I made 125 for a season, thousand for a season, six month season. And then for WBA, my first season, I made 30,000, even though it was a, it was a 10 week season, you still got paid more. It was during the basketball season. You want second fiddle to the men, but it's hard to compete with the w, WBA. They had the NBA behind them, the big money, the big marketing dollars. And, and they're the main reason why the ABL went out of business. Do you feel that um, that was, that ended up being for the better or for the worse for uh, women's professional basketball in total? I think it was hard having two teams at the same, two leagues at the same time. And the talent, most of the talent was in the ABL. And so um, the, the WBA product to me just wasn't there just yet on a whole. And then when the ABL came and made, it brought the game, when the ABL players went to WBA, well, I'll tell, you, I'll tell you how good the ABL players were. Um, the WNBA players put a rule in and no more than three ABL players could be on a team because they were going to be taking people's jobs. So that's how good the ABL was. Um, and a lot of my friends, um, you know, lost jobs and that's in the ABL. They, they didn't play anymore after that. One woman was in a, committing suicide when she found out the league had folded and didn't have a job. So it hit people people pretty hard that's I mean honestly tragic to hear I'm so sorry to hear that um but for you looking back do you are you happy with your choice to join the WNBA uh yeah Yeah. I'm happy I wonder if it would have been better if I left sooner Mm -hmm. you know I would have maybe had more um because I had to go through a draft again and there were some younger players that got taken above me and if I got taken, if I'm gone sooner, I wouldn't have, maybe I would have made more money, but I was, I just liked the ABL and the feel for it. I like my teammates and I felt like, um, I don't know. I just felt like it was the best thing to do for women's basketball. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it seems like you're part of the foundation of the sport and, but also with that, you had said you had deferred your grad school admissions for two years. So clearly somewhere along the line, you decided to drop that. What was that decision like for you? <laughs> I don't even remember making it. I was just like, all right, I'm playing professional basketball. I'll just keep doing it. <laughs> awesome. Was there ever a thought um, at all during your career where you were like, maybe I should go back and end up finishing that graduate program? Yeah, sometimes. I, um, I thought about it a lot. Even when I stopped playing, I toyed with the idea of going back. I just didn't have the same passion for it that I had before. 
Um, yeah. If I can, if I can ask about more recent events really quick, just jumping to the past year that we had and when the virus started taking over the lives, did, did those kind of emotions come back at all? Or was it more so that you wanted to, um, to sit back and see how things turned out more so? Emotion, what, what kind of emotion? Um, to, to be a doctor and um, to go finish that out. Oh, no. I, a lot of times I wish I understood what doctors were saying when I would talk on TV. I think maybe I had more knowledge I could understand. But no, I, I never really I never really thought that. I know I struggle when people ask me, what are you doing now? And it's, it would be so cool to say, oh, I'm a doctor, but I tell them what I do. That's the only, only time I ever struggle and think about you know, what could have been. Yeah, definitely. And that makes sense. And I mean, I have to say, I mean, I definitely consider myself a leader personality, but I cannot imagine having to make decisions about COVID in general. So I can't imagine um, how it would be to be a doctor right now. Um, but jumping back a little bit about, you know, the WNBA and the ABL. So you talked about how like that transition from high school to college was not really a big deal for you. Did you kind of feel a bit more of a change between going collegiate and pro or anything like that? Or was it again, just like, oh, new 12 girls I'm with? Yeah, it didn't feel, the hardest thing about going pro that everybody necessarily is not buy-in um, to division. Um, people have contract bonuses, they got shoe contracts that may say, if you score this many points a game, you get this. So there's a lot of different things going on that you don't know about. And for, I just feel like it was hard to get everybody on the same page of winning and all they could beat. They, they could appear that way and not really be that way. That was the hardest thing for me. And then playing overseas, when you play overseas, you're playing, you're in that country, um, you're in that country. Mm-hmm. You, you're playing with people who don't speak English on your team, your coaches don't speak English. I mean, that's, that's an adjustment, but it wasn't, you know, the competition is something I never really struggled with until um, my WNBA career. And that was with, mainly because I was playing with undiagnosed bipolar depression for those three years. Um, That goes in obviously to a little about your overall decision to eventually retire. So could you speak a little to what contributed to that and what what ended up um, causing you to fully pull that trigger? Um, It was it wasn't really it wasn't kind of my decision. It was more like my body's decision. Um, I had gotten, well, I had a baby the year before, and I was on this team, Minnesota, and practices were really rough. There were like um, football practices. There were no fouls were ever called, and that was our style of play. And so my back had been really um, not the best, and, and I wasn't happy on the team, and I asked to be traded, and they said, well, no one wants to trade for you. We'll cut you, and no one picked me up, and then I was still rehabbing my back, couldn't get that better and just say, you know what, I'm just gonna stop playing. And I could have played more, I had teams interested, but I just said, I, you know, I'm, I'm done. And I, it was at a point where I probably, ha- I've always had, not always, for those three years, I had a love-hate relationship with the game of basketball. And as much as I missed basketball, I am glad I stopped playing. Yeah, I mean, obviously you have to make the best decision for yourself. What was that first year of retirement like for you, though, after bas- daily basketball had been such a part of your life for the past, I don't know how many years? Well, people don't realize um, all athletes 
transition is hard, whether you're coming out of um, high, high school, um, whether you're coming out of college, whatever, it's, it's a hard transition because you're used to that rigor and that routine, um, used to training. Like for, that was for the first time I was training for health and not for performance in the sport, which was weird for me. Um, I didn't know it was, I didn't know how to train. I think that's why you see a lot of fat former athletes. That's, that's just my theory. I don't know if it's true. And then mentally, um, you, I always thought, well, did I make the right decision? Um, uh, should I have stayed on and, and, and played some more? And, and then you're trying to figure out what you want to do because for eight years, you're playing a sport where all, while your colleagues from college are climbing up the corporate ladder, getting experience that you don't have because you were playing a sport for eight years. So that's another thing. We, a lot, that's why a lot of, right now, there are a lot of athlete transition coaches out there to help athletes transition from the sport to real life because it's, it's a hard transition. And then I have to think that, I mean, that transition is definitely different for men and women who a lot of male athletes just make insane money throughout their careers where it's the WNBA and like the NWSL are not funded in the same way. So it's like, you're not really coming out with the same advantages as your male counterparts. Yeah, it's not like I played and I had like three 10 year, three $10 million contracts and I can just come out and chill or, I don't know, start a foundation, something. I mean, I had to come leave the league and then immediately go look for a way to make, um, make income. Yeah, absolutely. So obviously you've taken on a career as a motivational speaker. How did your beginnings with that kind of unfold? Um, that started when I was playing okay. and... Um, I remember my, my, one of my first gigs I spoke to, well, it's called Bank of America now. It wasn't called Bank of America then. And it was, I didn't even realize I was being broadcasted to every, <laughs> every, bank, every bank of America all over the country. Um, so that was really, that was really cool. Um, I prefer to speak to young people. Um, I, I just feel my message is better for them. And they seem... Um, they don't know it all just yet, although a lot of teams just think they know it all. Um, but I've gotten a lot of practice speaking just with my TikTok channel and um, throwing different things out there in terms of inspiration and motivation to see how kids react. Kids don't like motivation and inspirational TikToks because those never do well. The ones that do well, my ones I'm being silly or some stupid dance or some POV. Uh, point of view video but I, I I still want people to hear what I have to say and I feel like um, I don't know I, I just want to help um, young female athletes and that's why I'm doing this that's awesome and then you also have made speaking of TikTok you made some big changes on a bigger scale at TikTok can you talk a little bit about um, your experiences with TikTok and some of like you know the discrimination that you went through there yeah, um, it was been, it was rough last summer. I was being um, bullied and at, more harassed by just random boys. Uh, they would go and change my um, Wikipedia page and put negative stuff on there. Um, they come to my um, they were in my live streams, always um, being trolls for that. Um, they hacked my account and stole it, and then sold it, changed the username. Um, I had someone dox me and then said he was coming to my house and they called me on my phone and texted me 
So and I and it's kind of weird. I'm like, what did I do to like what you know, me just saying female athletes, believe in yourself. Like, why does that trigger somebody? I don't know. But it was it was pretty bad. I had to get the police involved because they were because I was getting physical threats. Oh my I mean that that's just inexplicable, honestly. I I don't understand why anyone would want to do that or go through all that effort really to to do all of that um but you also you did mention that you really felt you connected with the younger generation and is there a specific reason that you feel compelled to to always talk to them and reach out to them specifically um well first of all i'm i'm like really immature like i i swear i have not grown up yet um like my sense of humor is young um I find sometimes adults boring because they just don't know how to have fun. And I, I, I like the kids, not to sound creepy, but I, I just do, right? Uh, I, I see a lot of myself in them, you know, just struggling with day-to-day, just self-esteem and believing yourself. And even though I had parents that tell, would tell me great things about myself, I didn't believe them because they were my parents. So I wish I had a third person like myself to to inspire me and motivate me when I was really struggling with how I saw myself and, and hating myself and, and not wanting to um, just get out of bed. So that's why I'm, I feel drawn to the young people. And you can be silly on TikTok and nobody cares. I can't do that stuff um, on Facebook. I, I do put some stuff on Facebook, but I don't put all of it because they, they don't, they won't get it. You know, they, no. they won't get it. No, but yeah, I mean, obviously I can only speak for myself, but as a teen, I definitely really appreciate your content. Um, and then I just wanted to ask you one final question before we head into our little speed round at the end, which is a little sillier. Um, but I just wanted to ask, what would be your number one piece of advice to student athletes? Um, stop and smell the roses and celebrate every victory. Every win is important. A lot of times when we're, especially type A personalities, where we just strive and strive and strive and never celebrate the little wins. We don't get the big win. We're like, oh, we didn't get that big win, but we didn't. We missed the 27 little wins that happened along the way. So that's what I would say to a student athlete. That is that is definitely a intro. I would say not an introspective way to think about it, but it's definitely something I know a lot of me and my friends, we don't really think about that because we're always so focused on the, the big goal in the future. Um, and then as Lucy mentioned, we've got our, uh, our speed round at the end, which is, you know, quicker questions, a little more about you personally, and kind of just being able to have some fun with them. So uh, we're just going to start off with one of our classics uh, and either nowadays or back when you were uh, playing, um, did you prefer to be running or did you prefer to be in the weight room lifting? Um, weight room. Weight room all the way. It'll, that that tends to do. be the trend. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I agree with you hundred <laughs> um, percent. So then before all of your games, did you have like a pregame meal that you had to have or a pregame routine that you went through each time to get yourself ready? Um, I had to take a nap and visualize the game. Um, before taking a nap. Any, so any, any specific food you had to have? No, I do not remember that. I do know um, her name is Auntie Chantel. She had a Snickers bar before every game. 
and then one at halftime. I mean, you're not you when you're hungry. You got to have them. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Um, so obviously you've taken up motivational speaking, but do you have any other hobbies outside of that and uh, basketball, obviously? Yeah, um, salsa dancing, which I can't do right now because of COVID. Um, I like karaoke as well. Um, I write, I'm writing a book. So I, mean, I can consider that a hobby. That's awesome. Yeah, I'll have to get a hold of that when that comes out. Thank you. Um, I would say, including basketball here, do you have a favorite sport to watch? And then also, if it is basketball outside of basketball, what would it be? Um, my favorite sport to watch, um, I like watching soccer and track and field. My favorite sport to play, honestly, is kickball. That's my favorite sport. That is such a fun sport to play. <laughs> that, that just brings back elementary school days. <laughs> Nothing like them telling the outfield to back up when you come up to the plate. Nothing I know. Different. I know. Yep. I mean, All-American, asking them to back up when you come up. I mean. Um, so I think we're going to leave it off with one of our favorite questions to ask each and every one of our guests. And uh, the question is basically... Uh, there's a movie studio coming up to you and they want to make a sports documentary or a sports drama about your life and about your career. Who is going to be the first person you're calling and asking to play you? Oh. It's a tough one. Yeah, no, it's a tough one. <laughs> that, that tends to be the general reaction. There aren't any tall actresses except for that, the woman who plays Wonder Woman. She's like 5'10". Yeah, oh, okay. Yeah, I'll take the one because she's 5'10". She can play. Although she, we, look, not gonna, we don't look alike, but still. She, <laughs> she has the height. She's got the range. She could do it. Gal Gadot, right? That's her name. Yeah. 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 That, all right. We'll, we'll call her up. We'll make sure she's ready to go. We'll tell her to start practicing basketball. <laughs> all right. Well, it's been really great to get to know you today. And I mean, honestly, like the foundation of women's basketball in general from all of your experiences. Um, and we really we wish you the best. And thank you so much for joining us. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Another great episode of The Road to D1. And thank you very much for listening all the way through. Make sure you follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at The Road to D1 to find out every Friday who the next week's episode guest is going to be. And make sure you're also following along on either Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you're getting this, so you can see the new episode every Tuesday. Make sure you also leave a review, um, maybe mentioning who your favorite host is, Lucy, and leaving five stars. All of that means a whole lot to us. And thank you once again for listening all the way through. Absolutely, guys. Have a great week.